Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. It's my privilege to have with us today the world's foremost expert on polygamy, polyandry, and what is being called polyamory. And we're going to be talking about the names during the program and what they mean. But Dr. Elizabeth Eli Sheff is the world's foremost expert, or I imagine modestly she'd say one of a very small handful of people who are experts in this area. She's written such books as The Polyamorous Next Door, When Someone You Love is Polyamorous, and Stories from the Polycule. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Eli. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So let us start from the beginning. You've been studying what some people are referring to as polyamory, and you as an expert are calling it that. And before the show, I told you that I was looking for other words myself for it, because I don't know if polyamory includes everything, but we're going to find out from you. And you're shaking your head. No, it doesn't. So going back historically, how did you get into this particular specialty? When I was 22, I fell in love with a man who did not want monogamy. And on our very first date, he said he never wanted to be monogamous, never wanted to get married. And at the time, I was brokenhearted from this woman I was just head over heels for, and she had broken up with me. So I was thinking, this dude was disposable. Like, I was just going to mess with him until I was emotionally strong enough to get back to real relationships with women. Um, So I didn't anticipate falling in love with him. And when he told me he never wanted monogamy, I was like, I don't care, whatever. You know, like, you're a temporary boy toy. You're going to be out of here. So I don't care what you want, really. At Um, 22, you had that awareness and that strength. That's really something. Because he was the wrong gender. I did not anticipate having feelings for him. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I surprised myself by really falling for him, like, madly, madly in love with this man. And then, of course, it was actually, to me, a really big deal that he didn't want monogamy. He didn't want marriage. I had never been, like, really focused on marriage and monogamy. I wasn't one of those girls who, you know, at eight years old, I was planning Barbie's dream wedding or something. I didn't, that wasn't my personality. But at the same time, when he said he didn't want marriage or monogamy, but he did want permanent life partnership, I was like, well, how, what does that even look like? How do those things fit together, permanent life partnership without monogamy or marriage? And clearly they can. But what he actually wanted was a harem of women focused on him. He didn't want polyamory in terms of both partners have access to multiple partners, regardless of gender. That's the true meaning of polyamory. Thank you. What he actually wanted was polygyny, which is one man with multiple women. Only he wasn't, I think, honest with himself about that. He Mm -hmm. certainly wasn't honest with me about it, and I... Let me interrupt with a quick question. Yes. When this is going on, you're 22 years old? Did I hear that correct? Yes. So you were either still in college or just starting grad school or somewhere right in there. And you're taking on this kind of enormity of relationship. I mean, I'm awestruck. I think it's a lot for a 22-year-old to take on. Absolutely. Especially because it was the first time I had really fallen in love. Like I'd had crushes, this woman that I had been really into before him. Yes. I was super crushed out on her, but it wasn't falling in love the way a real relationship that's reciprocal and mutual. You know, it was this kind of adoration from afar 
And she was dabbling. She was like, I don't know. Do I like women? I might like women. Let me let me check it out and see if I do. And she decided she liked women as friends, but not romantic partners, which is a legitimate choice. Was she in the the same college with you? Yes. What what school was it? That was Sonoma State University, okay, which is I know in the school Sonoma well. County, California. Exactly. At the time, everyone called it Granola U, yeah. which was perfect <laughs> for me. I'm such a hippie at heart. So it was ideal for me. And a lot of people experiment in college. You know, they're yes. looking around, they're trying on various aspects of their identities. So actually... I was fine with, well, I wasn't actually fine with it because she used me as a shock factor for her parents who were very wealthy. She took me home to the East Bay to meet them just and without really caring what it did to me or anticipating a long relationship with me. She was just using me as shock factor, I think, primarily for her father, who was a huge asshole to me because. He thought I had ruined his daughter. You know, I had tempted her into a life of lesbian lasciviousness. And I was like, dude, it's not nearly as lascivious as you think. (laughs) Actually, I came with her. She's pretty hands off. I think basically she was a straight chick just checking out the scene, which I think, again, legitimate. So take us forward. You left her. That broke up. The thing goes on with the man. He looks like he's looking for a harem. And now it take us more, a little more forward as you're getting into becoming, into specializing it in graduate school. Or when yes. did you start to specialize in this subspecialty within our overall profession? In graduate school, um, yeah. I, as an intellectual, intellectualized something that frightened me. I was like, oh, if I could study this. Kind of make it hold still for long enough that maybe it won't be so scary. And now, in fact, I realize it's not frightening. It's fine. It doesn't work for me. And I've realized it took me 25 years to realize I am monogamous by orientation. Who knew? I see. But you also, if I understand you correctly, have had enough experience with other forms of mutual cohabitation that you now have come to the decision in your life or choice that you are in some way very powerfully monogamously oriented, correct? Yes. But you gave yourself the freedom over a period of over a decade or maybe two to experiment in the kindest and most loving way possible, I'm sure, to see whenever you could. I mean, really, because, you know, it's hard enough trying out new forms of sexuality, let alone to bring in, you know, bad vibes, which is going to happen, of course, but still it's an extra level of complexity. Uh, Yes. Right? And it's hard, right? It's difficult enough being monogamous. So, (laughs) so, okay, now, Take us to the academic part, because you have become a prominent academician. When I introduced you as one of the handful of world experts on polyamory, we want to know more about now about the academic side, please. So I've been doing what they call ethnographic research, which is a form of qualitative research that focuses primarily on interviews, semi-structured interviews on the one hand, and then what they call participant observation. On the other hand, where I go to polyamorous settings, which means lunches, support group, meetups, campout, potluck, movie night, conferences, conventions, and hang out with polyamorous people and observe their interactions in the wild. You sound like a sociologist. I am a sociologist. <laughs> I know. <laughs> because for the for our listeners who are not, you know, familiar, 
what sociologists do is exactly what Dr. Eli is telling us she did, which is they go out and live and hang out and be with the people that they're studying. Some of us. Some of you, that's right. Ethnography is actually even more common among anthropologists. Yes, indeed. Than sociologists. A lot of sociologists, the quantitative sociologists study secondary data, like census data and quantitative data, things like that. Yeah, yeah. My research turned out to be accidentally longitudinal because I had done my first research on the polyamorous community, and then people kept asking me, what is this like over time? And especially, how does it impact the children in these families? And I was like, well, that's a good question. I don't know. So I decided to try to get back in touch with my original sample and then follow as many of them forward as I could. So I started the research in 1996 and have followed people forward doing multiple interviews across time until some of the kids I met when they were in maybe, you know, when they were three years old, perhaps like preschoolers. Now they're graduating from college and having families of their own. Oh, good for you. You did a real longitudinal study. Fantastic. Okay. Dr. Eli Dish, tell us what you can about children from polyamorous families. I'm so excited. Turns out they are in great shape that all of the extra adult attention and support creates this social safety net for them that becomes incredibly useful. It was great for them when they were small, but now that some of them are adult, they're finding not only did they learn incredibly valuable relationship skills, like how to communicate, how to consider boundaries, how to renegotiate over time, how to um, develop emotional intimacy, how to be honest even when it's hard. They learned all that fantastic stuff, but then they also have multiple people dedicated to their well-being as they age. So some of them, when they were teenagers, for instance, if they were one of them specifically, I can think of, was just having a really hard time with her mom, her and her mom from the time she was maybe 14 to 17, were just not getting along well at all. So she was able to maintain contact with her mother, but withdraw and rely on other adults much more so than her mother. And that ended up working out great. Like they didn't have the kind of explosive blowout fight that some parents then later regret having, for instance, kicked their children out of the house or something. Some parents look back on that and think, oh, that was a terrible move. But because they were able to spread the parenting and the support around multiple adults, they ended up being able to kind of dilute that period of very high stress for them And now they're great friends. It really worked out for them. Point of information. Yes. Using that example, when the younger person was having problems with her biological mom, were the other people that she went to for support part of mom's polyamory group so she could somewhat relate to them as parents? Is that correct? Yes, so a polyamory group is called a polycule. It's like an extended family kind of of polyamorous folks. So her mom How many people can be in a polycule? As many as they want, as many as works. Most have people who are romantically connected and then other people who are not romantically connected. So it's not like it 15 people and all 15 of them are lovers with each other. Maybe there's four or five people who are lovers and then they have lovers too. And those lovers are maybe 
friends and know each other, but it's not like everyone is always lovers in every polycule. In fact, that's really unusual. The vast majority of polycules I've heard of have some people who are polyamorous, meaning having a loving, romantic, sexual relationship, and some people who are polyaffective, meaning they have an emotional relationship that doesn't contain romance or sexuality. So they have a more sibling-like relationship, possibly brother-husbands or something like that, but not necessarily partners. And in your research over this wonderfully long period of time, and so taken with it, what's the average number of people in a polycule? You know, I'm not sure that there is an average. It really depends on how the people define it. Generally, Uh I've noticed that people can sustain up to maybe three ongoing, in-depth, intimate partnerships. But after that, there's only 24 hours in a day. It's hard to have time to sustain Yes, yes. So even three sounds like it might be a bit stretchy, but... Absolutely. For some people, one or two is the best. You know, three Mm -hmm. is about as much as people can manage in terms of having ongoing, deep emotional intimacy. Okay, so now I'm going to give you an example and ask a question. Three people get together. They decide that they love one another. They're going to get together, and they're going to live together. And one of them has a child with one of the other two and but the child grows up relating to all three of them as parents correct correct then the biological parents decide to get divorced and one of them moves out and then of the other two they decide to go in separate directions So now what was a three are three ones. What does the child do? It really depends on the depth of relationship the child had with all three of them. Many of the children retain a connection to important adults in their life, even if those adults are no longer sexually connected with each other. And that's one of the things I really like about polyamorous families and think that monogamous families could learn a lesson from that, that the parents in the polyamorous family make a commitment to the child, regardless of what's happening among the adults. And I think every parent can commit to their child regardless of whether they still have sexual access to that child, other parents, or I not. Here, 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 here. I agree with you 100%, Dr. Eli. So 100%. now that children have In fact, access, any, anything, anything less than that is really unacceptable, isn't it? I absolutely agree. Yeah. Yeah. But now that children have access to social media, for instance, it's easy for them to stay in contact with their parents' exes that they developed a strong relationship with, even if that person moves away. Everybody's got a cell phone now, a smartphone. You can do video chat. You can stay in touch. These kids will sometimes go visit those other humans who were parental-esque figures, often more of an auntie or uncle figure than a full-on parent, usually the biological parents remain the primary parents, especially when it comes to discipline and things like that, that frequently the partners don't want to be involved in disciplining the kids. They want to be the fun, you know, take you out for ice cream kind of person, not the I'm grounding you for a week. That's the, no yeah, the answer, the uncle or the grandparent, but not the parent with, on that Precisely. particular dimension. Of course, that makes sense, and it does make sense. Yes, indeed. 
but it doesn't mean it has to happen. Because if right. that person decides to take a parental role, then they change the nature of their relationship with that young person. Usually it's coming from the young person, whether they, uh -huh. whether that other person is allowed to be parental-like. Yes, that's right. That's right. Them. And uh -huh. generally it's three specific circumstances that are required for the children to view that person as a parent. One, that they meet that person when they are quite young, like single digit in age, elementary school yes. um, or earlier. Two, yes. that they know that person for a long time. So it's uh -huh. not just a six month hanging out, whatever, but Fly that by night. Yes. remains a feature long term hmm. in their life. And three, yes. that they cohabitate with that person during their youth. If all three of those are met, then that person is much more likely to feel like a parent to the child. Otherwise, if they don't live together, if they meet them when they're older, if they have their own place but come over frequently or hang out together but don't live together, they're much more likely to be that auntie-uncle kind of figure or friend of the family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that makes good sense. Tell us more. Tell us about how polyamorous children of children of polyamorous families deal with the topic with friends. That's a great question. They often don't even have to because so many of their friends also have multiple parents via divorce. Divorce and repartnering is so common that multiple parents just blend into the background. So children from polyamorous families will often just allow other people to assume that they are in a family that's divorced and just gets along great, gets along with each other really well. Or it's a family that has close friends and they're hanging out. Polyamory is still under the radar enough that it's not as socially recognizable as other forms of relationship. For instance, if you see two women with their child and their dog on the playground, they're socially legible, kind of as a lesbian couple. Oh, that's a lesbian family with their baby. How sweet. If you see three people with a kid, in a restaurant having lunch, even if you know about polyamory, the first thing that occurs to you might not be that's a polyamorous triad with their baby. You might think that's a couple with their friend. That's, you know, a, a group of friends, whatever. Yes. But polyamorous yes. triad is not the first thing yes. that occurs. Mm -hmm. So children frequently. We're going to change that. Maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> Although it offers some protection, being able to yes, pass. I see that. As monogamous, being able to pass as a conventional family. Yeah. I threw um, in that line about we're going to change that because I happen to believe that alternative cohabitation styles are the natural way for the animal uh, called human beings or Homo sapiens. And that monogamy is just one of a, a whole bunch of different ways of cohabiting. And because Absolutely. of many factors, which you know, I'm sure, more about than I, and not the least of which is religion, we've settled upon a particular style and we've normalized it. Like if you want to be normal, th that's what you are. And so, we're, we, you know, that's part of the culture. Or at least it's part of Western culture. It's obviously not part of, of other cultures that also have very large populations. Right, right. Compulsory monogamy frames institutions, you know, large and small. Yes. From how many parents' names can go on a birth certificate to how many people can adopt a child to, you know... How many people can you list as medical contacts? Things like that. Yes, compulsory monogamy shapes 
attitudes and policy to the detriment of polyamorous families. Absolutely. Have you been tracking the data on the increase in alternative cohabitation styles during this 25-year or more period that you've been collecting data? Is, is, is I haven't the, been tracking the quantitative data, meaning like how many people are doing it, but I've noticed significant shifts in attitude toward, for instance, adult cohabitation, in part because housing is incredibly expensive. It's not just polyamorists who live with each other. Living together as an adult with roommate is very common now that housing is so expensive. In a way, it wasn't quite as common 20 years ago. So this trend towards group living, towards shared living, towards purchasing homes together, towards um, co-housing even, which is something I have really enjoyed. I've lived in two different co-housing communities, and that's my favorite way to live, actually, is to have my own base within a larger co-housing community is ideal for me. Uh, there were some experiments with that in Manhattan several years ago, and they were seemed to be getting some traction where they, they had buildings that were styled exactly what you said. Everybody had their own room, but then there was shared common space, shared kitchen. It was very Palo Solari, if you remember him, with Arco Sante. He, he had that vision as a, a visionary architect, common shared and private uh, sleeping arrangements. I don't know what happened to that movement in Manhattan. It sort of dropped off the, uh, the radar screen. If you're going to live with people with your own private space, but then shared public space, the people have got to take responsibility for maintaining the shared public space. Yes. In my experience, when everyone takes collective responsibility for the shared space, it's fabulous. But when people misuse the shared space and leave a mess and take things and don't replace them and, you know, basically abuse the goodwill of their neighbors, then yes. people start to withdraw from the collective space. They feel like they're, it's too dirty. Like they always have to clean it before they use it. Yes. So they, or they get they, angry yeah. and irritated at each other. Exactly. For what, what, so where are you located geographically right now, Dr. Eli? Where are you? This instant, I happen to be visiting Oakland, California, but I think huh. recently came off of two years on the road and oh, wow. moved into another collective housing situation um, in the D.C. metro area. That's what, Washington, okay, that, that's home. You picked Washington, D.C. Yes. Yeah. Tell me, well, as, as an aside to our topic, a couple of minutes on how you picked Washington, D.C. Well, my friend has a gigantic house because her, she and her entire polycule had lived there. And like happens when you have big groups of people, regardless of whether they have romantic connections or not, there's always turnover in large groups. You always have. Large groups meaning what number, Dr. Eli? Her polycule was nine people. Oh, oh okay. That's, um, that's like now, a small community. Yes, and the house could accommodate. The yes. house is gigantic. Yes. So when the her polycule situation changed, they had a room come available. It took them, um, they've had several different renters, but everyone in the household has to agree on the renter before the yes. renter moves in. Yes. And they couldn't, so that room was empty for years because they couldn't find someone uh -huh. that meshed well with the household. And that's what the one you got? Is, is a hippie used to collective living. Uh-huh. And I meshed really well in that household. Partially, I think, because I'm not lovers with any of them, which makes it, for me, 
easier. I don't have the same charge around, you know, years of history, romantic history, feeling betrayed or whatever with any of these folks. Yeah. And you do your own dishes. I do my own dishes. I even do other people's dishes. I cook <laughs> lots of food. If I'm making food, I cook big. So I give people rides if they need them. I'm, I'm, I got the mm, collective living down because I love it so much. I, as long as I can have my own space and privacy yes. when I want it, I like that feeling of being part of a group. I, the kind of atomized, individualistic, kind of bubble-wrapped solitude uh, really works for me sometimes, but I get lonely after a while, and I want, I really enjoy living with roommate for other people and having the option to interact when I want to and be by myself when I want to is ideal for me. One more question on this. Um, what are you, how are you referring to this? Is, this? is this that you're moving into? Is it a polycule? No, not for me. It's a commune? Because I'm not, I'm not polyamorous. Is it a commune? Would you call it a small commune? No, I think it's more of a group household. Group household? Mm -hmm. I have friends that live in one in San Francisco called Embassy Network. I nice. don't know if you're, you're familiar with it. I haven't heard of it. No. Oh, okay. And they, they sh share the common space, just like we're talking about. And they uh -huh. also share me. They also share meals. Nice. And, um, yeah, we all cook collectively as you well. Do. I like it. See what, what you're really doing by doing that. And by the way, when I've done that in my life, it's been the richest part of my life as well. There's no doubt about it. I live that way at Wilbur Hot Springs uh, in you Northern California. That's a delightful place. I've been there. Well, thank you. I started the health sanctuary there in 1972. Nice. And, uh, and we lived collectively in the early years. And it was very rich, very emotionally and heartfully rich. It, it felt like family, living in family all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think it's interesting that you point out that for economic reasons, people are starting to live together. And it's sort of like a positive side effect of the negativity of the socioeconomic stratification that's hurting so many people by forcing them to live together, which is healthier for them, which is it's pretty, it's an interesting little twist. It's positive for me because I've been able to find wonderful people to live with. It is very much not positive for some people whose roommates are assholes. You know, if you're living with someone who is exploitative of you, eats your food and leaves a mess, it's well, no, not but, positive. Why would you want to be living there? You want to be moving because out. Because it's what you can afford. Yeah, you have That's to what find. You can find. Thank you. That's a very important answer. That was a very important answer. It's because what you can afford, and you could, might be able to be stuck in a place with with people who are really uh, extremely dif difficult, if not aberrant. Okay, let's get back to polyamory, and I want to team up with you not just today on the program, but going into the future because we're going to stay connected for the rest of our lives. And Wonderful. good. And see if we can come up with a more inclusive nomenclature, something beyond polyamory. I don't like consensual non-monogamy, and here's the reason. I like to say what things are. I don't like to define myself or anybody in terms of what they're not. And so, you know, to say I'm not monogamous, okay, great, you're not monogamous. But what are you? I don't know until you tell me. That's what I want to know. I want some language that says I'm a pantheist and I'm also pansexual. And maybe that gets across. I'm not sure, right? Because if you get technical, as you well know, you can be polyamorous without being pansexual. Absolutely. Right? So this gets into, you know, fine wording until we come up with one that really, you know, gets the whole thing going, right? 
So we'll get there. We'll get there. It's on our plate. Back to your research and some of the things you want to share with our readers and listeners from the books that you've written. What are some of the important things, including, and here's what I think the average person wants to know. They want to know about things about jealousy in these relationships. They want to know about things like envy, when people get annoyed and deal with it. They want to know how much time you have to spend together processing. Is it a constant therapy session? Yes. Right? They want to know about things like sexually transmitted diseases, because if you're with somebody who's with somebody who's with somebody who's with somebody, you could have sex with somebody and, with, and you're having sex with 27 people all at once because it co- that, that, that STD could come right down the line, right? Tell us about these kinds of things and more. So in terms of jealousy, it turns out when they measure levels of jealousy in relationships, that monogamous relationships have far higher levels of jealousy than polyamorous relationships. Because in monogamy, you're not supposed to be attracted to other people. You're not supposed to look at other people. There's no mechanism to kind of make that okay. So to have a monogamous partner that notice someone else feels like a terrible affront, a significant threat. Whereas in polyamory, yes, people often feel jealousy less frequently than they do in monogamy. And generally, there's a mechanism to talk about it and do something about it. Find out why is this person feeling jealous? Sometimes it's because, for instance, I'm thinking of a specific respondent who felt really jealous of his wife. Well, it turns out they had opened their relationship and his wife was having a lot of success dating. And so she was getting all these dates and sometimes she would have a date Friday night and then Saturday night and then Sunday during the day. And he didn't have dates, so he ended up being at home with the kids all the time, folding laundry and eating macaroni and cheese while she's out on these dates, you know, going to shows and drinking, you know, exciting alcohol. So not to mention getting laid. Exactly. But it wasn't even if she wasn't having sex, she wasn't always having sex with these folks. Right. But the the kind of lopsidedness of every weekend she's out having a ton of fun and he's alone with the kids. It makes sense that he wasn't feeling good about that. So what they did was say, okay, Friday night is date night for her. Saturday night is he gets to do whatever he wants. If he's dating, great. If not, he gets to go do something else. He gets the same amount of time and resources, regardless of whether he's dating. And then Sunday was family day and Mm -hmm. his jealousy disappeared. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a practical thing that it was a symbol for him. Like his needs weren't being, it was not fair to him. So in that way, jealousy was a sign, like something's wrong. You need to pay attention to it. And they did. And it worked out in other times. Sometimes jealousy is based in insecurity or fear of loss. And so the appropriate response is for the partner to give a lot of reassurance and make sure that person is getting their needs met. Because if but you're not you're getting your needs met and your partner starts paying attention, you're, you're not getting enough time with your partner and then you get even less. It's like the starving person who finally gets a cookie And then they're supposed to give someone else half of their cookie and they're starving. They don't want to share that cookie. Whereas if they have a full buffet of food and they're they're well full and then somebody wants their cookie, they're like, oh, I've had three pieces of pie. You can absolutely have that cookie. Aren't the people who are polyamorous, including multiple sexual relationships, 
aren't they opening themselves up to more fear of loss out of if the person starts having sex with one or two others regularly, we know that sex creates a kind of glue between people. But if it's repeated over time, I'm not talking about an overnight quickie, but if it's repeated, it creates glue. And if there's glue, there's more opportunity for loss. And the one who was out there gluing is liable to come home and say, you know, I got stuck, <laughs> pun intended, on somebody else. It happens. Sometimes it happens. But also... But aren't you? I'm asking the question of whether polyamorous are taking a bigger risk by eating in so many restaurants because it, it enlarges the possibility that they'll find an even better restaurant than they have at home if sex is a major player in their personality. Right. I think it depends is the short answer. Some people, across my research, I have become absolutely convinced that for some people, multiplicity is an orientation. It's like being gay or bisexual or heterosexual. It's that deeply wired into some people. For other people, it's a choice or a lifestyle or a fleeting thing they want to try. But for, for the people who are polyamorous by choice, trying to say, no, you can only ever eat at my restaurant. You get Hungarian food for the rest of your life and no other kind of food. That poses a far greater risk of losing that person who says, you know what? I have been craving Mexican food. I need some Thai food. Give me some sushi. You know, I, I love that Hungarian food. Paprikash is fantastic. But I want sushi, too. And forcing that person, attempting to force that person to only ever have paprikash for the rest of their life is a way surefire way to lose them much more so than focusing on the paprikash forever. So, so what, I think it depends what on that the mean, What that means then, to Dr. Eli, is that we don't know how many or what percentage of the vast number of open quote cheaters, close quote, are really polyamorous, but they don't know it, if you know what I mean. They're, they're so enculturated with what their monogamy is and that the only way around it is to, quote, cheat, is they don't have this other legitimate way to express their inner selves. Precisely. Precisely. So the more you and I talk about this and your colleagues and others and bring it into the mainstream, the more we might actually cut down on what's called cheating or betrayal, which is one of the most terrible aspects in relationships in our country, leading to all kinds of problems, including homicide. Absolutely. Yes. Although there's a certain kind of person who wants multiple partners for themselves, but does not want their partner to have multiple partners. If you're going to be polyamorous, that's for everybody in the relationship. There's no, I get multiple and you get just me and no one else. The, second, the second group are the ones that want harems. Exactly. Exactly. Right? Or want to pretend that they're monogamous and they like that feeling of the clandestine kind of like the danger of cheating. They like to pretend they're James Bond and they're, you know, like sneaking <laughs> around yeah, yeah, and yeah. developing a cover story. And so and, and they not get, only they, do they keep their yeah. partner to themselves and not allow that partner to have other partners. But then they get this feeling of like being sneaky and smarter than their partner. It's really slimy. Back to the sexually transmitted infection question. Those folks, the cheaters, are far more likely statistically. They are the ones who transmit the sexually transmitted infections. People in polyamorous relationships talk about safer sex agreements. They do a lot of testing. 
they will come together and share their test result among the entire group. So everyone knows who's got what, who needs to use condoms, who's trying to have a baby and doesn't want to use condoms, you know, things like that. They're um, generally the rule around that is barriers, condoms, other things, unless otherwise specified. So the assumption is no sharing of bodily fluids unless it's been very clearly discussed, tested, everyone agrees, and then it's called fluid bonded. That there is the assumption, okay, within this prescribed boundary, these people share fluids, and outside of that, there is no fluid sharing. Except for, I imagine, kissing. Some people are really even uptight about that. It kind of depends on the health risk they are willing to take. Kissing, for instance, during COVID, kissing was not, was fluid bonding, you know, Flu during yes, That's why I brought it up, because it's technically, it's fluid bonding. Yeah. Right. So... I think it depends on the polycule. If people are young and healthy and no one in their life has an autoimmune disorder, then sure, maybe kissing is fine. But if someone in the polycule has lupus or something, then maybe kissing people outside of the polycule is not going to work. Or if you do kiss someone outside of the polycule, you need to then quarantine from the compromised immune person for two weeks or something. When, when we look at human beings in the way that Kinsey might have, and we look at the dimension of sexual drive, we're going to have a wide range with a middle. People immediately make an association with polyamory, with sex. There's an immediate connection. Polyamory, it means in some way there's sex involved. And we know what that means in our culture. A lot of hypocrisy, not a lot of hypocrisy, a monumental amount of hypocrisy and, and distortion and all kinds of problems. Okay. Double standards, right. gendered, e exactly. double standards. Very double. And from your lifelong study, are people who are polyamorous, would they be at the upper levels of sexual drive, and that's part of what's driving them to polyamory? Or might there be other dimensions such as attachment, familial seeking, and so on, which are even stronger? And we might find that the average polyamorous relationship doesn't have any more or less sex in terms of sexual encounters than monogamous relationships. It's a long question, but please yeah. uh, jump in. Yes. I would say while, while sex gets the headlines, it's what interests people who aren't polyamorous about, wow, you must be having constant orgies or something like that. That's right. It is not the mainstay, especially of the polyamorous family. The mainstay or what makes or breaks a polyamorous family are the polyaffective connections. So let's say there is the most common triad I've found is a woman with two men. So let's say in that relationship, the men are both heterosexual. They're not lovers. If they have a strong friendship, they really like each other, they support each other, they can spend time together and feel good about each other, that polycule is going to be much more solid regardless of having who's having sex with who than if those two men both of them love the woman, but they don't like each other, that family is not going to be able to get along together. There's going to have to be a strong firewall between those men. There's going to have to be 
a separation. So the sex gets the headlines, but it's the polyaffective relationships that make or break the long term. Does the family last or not? And in fact, there's so much negotiation and discussion of boundaries and talking about feelings and kind of working through feelings of jealousy and seeking compersion. Compersion is what polyamorous call the feeling kind of the opposite of jealousy, where you're thrilled to see your partner in love and being loved and being treated well and having fun with other people. You know, it doesn't, that only works if it's not costing you dearly. If your own needs are met, then it's much easier to feel compersion for your partner with someone else. So it's the polyaffective relationships that create that compersion. And people with very high sex drives and who are looking for a lot of sexual variety and looking to have sex with a lot of different people don't tend to gravitate towards polyamory because it's too much work emotionally. They are much more likely to gravitate towards other forms of consensual non-monogamies like open relationships or swinging or monogamish relationships have a lot more room for sexual encounters that aren't necessarily anticipated to become long-term, loving, ongoing, integrated relationships. Sometimes referred to as sport fucking. Exactly. And go for it. If that's what you want, there is nothing wrong with sport fucking. As long as everyone is a consenting adult, then you sport fuck on. It's way less work. I think it's so so important. You know, ongoing interaction. It's so important, Dr. Eli, to hear, for the public to hear from highly educated and trained experts like you and myself that all of these behaviors among consensual adults are okay. And some of them are downright fun. And that's just how it is. Yeah. Not to say there isn't a lot of work, which you're also sharing with us, a great deal of work. You used a word that I need help with, monogamish. What Monogamish relationships, so Dan Savage made up that word. Um, and it's filtered into the culture at large. Um, they differ from polyamory that Some forms of polyamory are focused on a couple that then also has outside partners. But generally that couple, if they're very coupley and very much about we're primary and other people are secondary, that's hierarchical polyamory. Um, And it can work great for some people, but it's got a lot of pitfalls, especially for the secondary partner. Yes. If they develop feelings and you can't control how you feel about people much of the time. Um, yes. So there, that's sometimes a little fraught, this kind of hierarchical couple that wants to be the main event for each other, but then see other people sometimes gets a lot of pushback from polyamorous communities that are more about non-hierarchical relationships or kind of group interactions, and ironically, not group sex nearly as often as one-on-one sex seems to be the main thing, but that the the um, emotional playing field is more level. If people really want the couple to be the primary focus with kind of wiggle room on the edges, monogamish is ideal because it it indicates they're close to monogamy in that they're about the couple, but the ish leaves them room to make out with other people on the dance floor or go to Vegas for the weekend and what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Or They've got a fall path 
or that one ex of theirs that the politics are terrible and they can't talk about politics. So twice a year, they get together and spend the whole weekend not talking about politics, you know, doing other things. So it really, what flavor of multiple partner relating depends on a lot on what that person wants. Do they want a full-on egalitarian group relationship? Do they want a couple relationship with that they sometimes date others? As a couple, they like the threesome with other people. Do they want to have an occasional fling, but really come across as very monogamous when they're visiting their families or they're at work or something? I mean, there's a huge range of the way people conduct their multiple partner. That's what I'm getting. As much of a range as I thought there was before this program, I realize there's even a bigger range talking to you, Dr. Eli, because, for example, I realize now that in some polyamorous relationships, they must all have sexual relations at the same time, whereas in others, there might be two of them and then two of them and then two of them, but never all three of them. Most common is is two at a time. Yes. Dyadic sex is the far more common. The group sex, some of my respondents talk about it as a condiment, you know, like it's fun to, you know, spice things up occasionally, but the constant orgy that is the kind of popular imagination of what these families must be, just not, not happening. Yeah. And that's what happened years ago, as you probably know, with the nudists. Everybody was sure for for years that nudists were just having orgies like crazy. And when sociologists researched them, it turns out they weren't having sex at all. Hardly. Not at the nudist camps, they weren't. They weren't allowed, as it turned out. They were very very conservative places where people were naked. It was very interesting. Okay, we've been talking a lot about the positive aspects of living together with positive affect, polyaffective that you've told us about, polyamory, with there's there's sexual relations as well, and then, of course, those where there's both affect and sexual relations, another group. And you and I have a lot of positive thoughts about this from our life experience and from our studies. What are the downsides? Let's talk about the, you know, the, what the pharmacies call side effects and what I call unwanted complications of medicine because they don't occur on your side, they occur on your whole body, right? So what are the unwanted complications of these al- some of these alternative cohabitation styles? I would say, well, for one thing, not everybody cohabitates. I, I hear that that's your focus. And for some of these families, they are cohabitating. But more often than not, people will have some of the partners living with them, but not all of them. They'll also be satellite partners. So I would say in terms of the negative or the disadvantages for these folks, sometimes the emotional complexity, all of the negotiating and all of the talking about it and figuring out your feelings and figuring out your boundaries and constantly renegotiating can be exhausting. Uh Also, even if people have limitless love and emotional capacity, there are limited resources, often time, money, space. You know, you love is bounded by physical reality frequently. So especially time can be a big challenge if you've got multiple partners who want your attention and you've only got one day off. Do you just always hang out with everybody together at the same time? What if one of your partners, their love language is one-on-one attention? That can be really challenging. Ironically, the sexually transmitted infections are not that big of a deal, but Stigma or the assumption that if you are polyamorous, somehow you are nasty or polluted or 
skeevy, creepy on some level, the stigma can be negative for people. Um, People have lost custody of their children. They have been fired from jobs. They've lost housing. They've been ejected from their families of origin. They've lost friend group. Um, There can be this assumption that if someone is polyamorous, that means they'll fuck anybody all the time. And so people start doing mate guarding, assuming that, oh, if you're polyamorous, then you must be after my spouse. Then I need to, you know, protect from you. Mm -hmm, You're a mm -hmm. threat. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And what about sharing with family, parents and grandparents? If you're polyamorous, is that a, that's an issue. It's got to be an issue. Absolutely. Um, it's much like coming out as gay or transgender. Yeah. You know, I see coming that. Coming out to your family. So people will often do it selectively. If there's a reason that person needs to know, then yes, it makes sense to tell them. Or, and sometimes that reason is emotional intimacy. You know, if you're really close to your sister, And then you start a polyamorous relationship and you're not telling her about these three people you're seeing, that's going to create an emotional barrier. So coming out to her as polyamorous might make a ton of sense. But let's say you've got a wealthy and religious grandmother who might take custody of your children. If she knows you're polyamorous, maybe you don't tell her, especially if she lives far away and you don't see her and what business is it of her, really? So it definitely comes with similar issues that face LGBTQ folks as well. What have we missed, Dr. Eli? Let's take a pause and give you a chance because there might be some things that we've missed that you want to share with us. I'm going to have you, by the way, I'm definitely going to invite you back. So if we miss something, there's no issue. (laughs) But I would say my primary and most important finding from the polyamorous family study, my longitudinal study, is that these families, all of the challenges they face are family disadvantages. So, for instance, they face stigma. Other families face stigma, too. Gay families, interracial families, interfaith families, single parents, divorced parents. Yeah. You know, like families face stigma. It's not only polyamorous families. Sometimes partners leaving. Families that get divorced or families that have a member die also face that um Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. overcrowding sometimes where Mm -hmm. it's a lot you know like when multiple people who already have children move in together sometimes the kids have to share a room Mm -hmm. that happens with blended families too Mm -hmm. you know i i challenge anyone out there to identify a disadvantage that is specific to only polyamorous families that other families do not face. You can't find one. You can try. However, they do have some advantages that other families have too, like sharing resources. Multi-generational families will share resources, but they have one advantage that other families don't experience. And that is if the adult become attracted to someone else, it doesn't have to destroy the family. Within a monogamous family, if one of the existing partners falls in love with someone else, that often means divorce. And so the family breaks up and the kids are shuttling between two different houses. The benefit here is no specific disadvantages but some specific advantages that Mm -hmm. other families don't have and some advantages that other families other unconventional things have as well well. i I love a challenge dr eli so as soon as you said they are they don't have any disadvantages that other families had i immediately had to start thinking of a disadvantage i came up 
I think I have one. Do tell. A polyamorous group of two are going to have a much more difficult time running for political office. But is that a professional disadvantage or a family disadvantage? I'm talking about, I don't mean... Well, it's a little of both in that it's a professional disadvantage, but it becomes a family disadvantage in the fact that one of the people in the polycule might be perfect for politics. But with that on their record in this country, uh, it's going to be a couple of years before we're going to see that, I think. Well, we do have, as far at last count, I think there were five elected officials across the United States who are openly polyamorous. Really? That's more than the number of transgender elected officials. Well, for sure. So five polyamorous. Do you know who they are, Dr. Eli? No, you know, I was hearing about it. There's um five, this, I'm gonna write that down. If I could get one of them on the program, it would be really hot stuff. The Polyamory Legal Action Committee has been looking at that. Are there polyamorous legislators? So I would say that that is not specific to polyamorous families because other sex and gender minorities also well, face that. That's Gay true. people, transgender people. It, weirdly, people get angry at asexual people, too, as if they're not allowed to decide they don't want to have sex, you know. And so I'm, that one I'm, is not specific to polyamorous families. Uh-huh. Survey says, wrong answer. Good try. I'm proud. Thank you. I'm proud to say I have some friends who are ecosexual. Uh-huh. And that might count work against someone in a very conservative setting if they come oh. out and they're like, I love the Redwoods. I have a connection to the Redwoods. Exactly. Somebody else might be like, you freak. That's There's right. something wrong with you and your tree-hugging ways. Yeah, it's Dr. Annie Sprinkle and, and her partner, Beth. Echosexuality. It's tremendous. Making love to the air and the water. And the sky. Yes. And the sky. The and the sky. The ocean. Dr. Eli, it's been wonderful having you as my guest on Mind, Body, Health, Thank and you. Politics. It's Thanks been so a much for having treat. And I've I, enjoyed chatting with you. I'm very I'm glad you have. I want to stay in touch, as I said, forever. Great. How long, how long are you in Sonoma for? I'm actually in Oakland right now. In Oakland. Thursday, one of the things I do is I'm an expert witness. Yes, I saw that. Oh, that's what I wanted to tell folks. Go to Dr. Elizabeth Eli Sheff's website. Read about her. ElizabethSheff.com. Say it again. Elizabeth, E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H-S-H-E-F-F, Elizabeth Sheff. Dot com. You can also find me, I blog on Psychology Today under the name of my first book, The Polyamorists Next Door. Thank you for that. Definitely go to her website. Let's stay in touch. Next time you're in California, we'll, I'll uh, have you as my guest up at Wilbur Hot Springs. I would love that. I haven't been to Wilbur in years. It's a deal. I would love that. You got it. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank-, thank you. You're welcome. And thank you, dear guests, for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. As you may recall, we broadcast every Tuesday at 9 o'clock. And as well, everything is on our live, um, our archive, rather, open source, which means no fee to you. Just go to mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. Until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.